Welcome to the Aging Well Podcast. I'm Jeff Armstrong, here with Corbin Bruton. In this and the episodes that follow, we will share candid discussions on aging and hear from the experts. We are here to inform and encourage as we experience, well, aging. It is our pleasure to be joined in this episode with one of my esteemed colleagues from Western Oregon University. Dr. Margaret Manugian is a professor in the Gerontology, Aging, and Older Adulthood Department of the Behavior Sciences Division. Her teaching focuses on intersectionality in aging, exploring aging pathways, parent-childhood relationships across the lifespan, social ties in aging, adult development in aging, life course review, lifespan development, death, dying, and bereavement, and other professional issues in gerontology. All right, so Dr. Manugian, welcome to the Aging Well podcast. Thank you. Dr. Manugian, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in gerontology. Well, you know, I don't think that was my intention when I was young, but I am the daughter of immigrants and I had two sets of grandparents and they did not speak English. And so I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and down the street from me was an older woman named Polly who was from Birmingham, Alabama, and she'd been a school teacher. And she was probably, when I met her, um, I was probably four or five, and I used to visit her every day. My mom would let me walk across the street to her house, and she she taught me to read and would feed me a cookie. And she had a bookshelf, and I could bring a book home with me. And um, Polly was uh, part of my life up until she died. She... um, uh, they tra- had she had to transition into a um, a nursing home, which was what it was called at the time. And I, we went to visit her there. I was pretty insistent. And it was pretty brutal um, to see her there. And, and they, you know, they've they've definitely changed over time. Um, but she was my first experience with an older adult, and I'm I'm an old soul. I've always loved to listen to people's stories. And usually the folks with the most interesting stories have always been the ones that are older than me. So, and then if you fast forward, I worked at uh, Western Oregon initially in the um, running the career development center in my twenties. When I left Western, I worked part-time at Oregon State University and started a doctoral program in um, human development family sciences. And I thought that I wanted to focus on work family issues. But I took a course um, from a gerontologist and I thought, what am I doing? Every part of my life, I have hung out with older adults. And I thought, this is where I need to be. So in my doctoral program, I focused on Older women and aging, actually. I did a adult a minors in adult development and aging as well as um, uh, women's studies, which was called women's studies at the time. It's now gender studies. But it was, uh, yeah, and it really, I knew I'd found home, both academically and then it just, it pieced together all of the experiences that I had across my lifetime. I started an adopt, I'm going to go on here. I started an adopt-a-grandparent program at UC Santa Barbara when I was a freshman and I got a, uh, got asked to introduce, um, the founder of the great, the great Panthers. Um, I got interacted with older adults in a assisted living facility. So I could go on. I just love the population. 
Well, speaking as a colleague, I I have to say we're glad you made that switch because I think my students, at least from exercise science, and hugely benefit from the gerontology program at Western. And you do teach a range of courses in gerontology at Western. What topics most interest you that you teach? Well, I I was looking back and I've developed 14 different courses since I've been at Western. It's quite a lot. And um, so my, my training is as a social gerontologist. I call myself a family gerontologist. And I, um, I study the relationships between adult children and their older parents as they both age and how they navigate that relationship. And, you know, I'm at the dentist or I'm at some other place and someone will mention, yeah, I'm my mom, I'm trying to figure out blah, blah, blah. You know, it's really relevant and very practical. Um, but I really, I really love focusing on, on those relationships. And I also focus on grandparent grandchild relationships too, which is a lot of meaning for me because I, um, am a grandparent of a three-year-old and an almost one-year-old. So, um, so my, my interests have been around social kind of family relationships and then my biggest partner here in the community is what was used to be called Willamette Valley Hospice and is now called Willamette Vital Health. And I do a lot of community education about family communication around aging and end-of-life issues. So I get called in to do many of those topics. And my biggest love is just preparing our students and the community around issues around aging. So um, so death and dying and grief, I teach social ties and aging. I teach a, a course, a gen ed course that I developed called the aging self, your pathway through adulthood, which focuses on health promotion, actually across with a focus on longevity. Um, and the students look at adulthood all the way to older adulthood and kind of the topic of many of your podcasts. Yeah. And um, I also developed a course on intersectionality, looking at inequalities and vulnerabilities in in later life. So um, I have a lot, and I run the practicum program. I love the applied aspects of of getting our students out there working with older adults and their family members. So I got a lot of interests, (laughs) and I could talk for a while about (laughs) that. So just letting you know. (laughs) Well, that's why we have you here. Yeah. So anyway, that's the the range of it. And the the course that the social ties course, which I also developed, focuses on um, uh, marital or non-marital partners, intimate relationships. It focuses on friendships it foc- and social support, social isolation. It focuses on um, kind of the underbelly, the not so positive aspects like elder abuse, because a lot most of that happens in the context of families, sadly. Um, I focus on grandparenting. I focus on, um, a lot of different kind of familiar siblings. So because of the relationship you'll have the longest in your life is with your sibling, if everything works out. Right. So yeah. sibling relationships are pretty critical too. So I, I talk about all the social contexts of, of aging. So in episode 87, we actually discussed the possible offense that many older adults might take to the term senior citizen. We've actually gravitated on this podcast to use the term third and fourth age. What are your thoughts on the language that we use to label older adults? And what do you teach your students? So I, almost every class that I teach, I, I focus a bit on ageism. 
And the reason I do that is that we bring a lot of gerontology is really interdisciplinary and the bios, biological, psychological, and social aspects of aging. And a lot of my courses attract people across majors, like the genetic course that I explained and, and stuff. So the and in all, all the years that I've been working with older adults, I've asked I've asked them, what would you like to be called? And there is no agreement. Okay. So if you use the word elder, some like that. And, and it's very, it's very appropriate in a cultural context. Um, if you say senior citizen, you say a senior, some of them say, I'm not a senior, I'm not a freshman. Right. And then you have people who will say, I'm not, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that a lot of older adults would understand the third age, fourth, fourth age thing that you're talking about. And the, the thing that's really important, I think, in, in language is that the biggest one I try to steer my students away from is the elderly. That's probably one of the most ageist um, uh, ways that we can talk about older adults because most folks who haven't aged yet um, see that the latter end of life is one of dementia and frailty and the elderly puts them all in that one category. And so when I ask my students, you know, what is, what do, what do you, what do you think of when you think of the elderly? And I said, now get that word out of your language. Don't ever use it again. So we use in our program, we use older adults um, and an underscore that actually the oldest, the older adults are the most diverse of any group because you stack up all their experiences over time and you stack up all of the the influences of socioeconomics you know, kind of their financial resources, their education level, where they live, rural, urban, in between, um, culture, race, class, you know, um, ethnicity, um, sexual orientation, identity, gender identity, all those things influence who they are. And it just builds up over time. So actually, you can't really put that group all in one. <laughs> so it's a long answer to your question, but it's... Um, there are so many things that older adults face in terms of stigma and discrimination, actually. And it's, I think it's critical. It's a, it's an age when people want to be visible and they have a lot to offer. And so giving them voice to how they want to identify is what I, what I try to do. But older adults is the term we use uh, formally in our classes. So I, I love know. that. Yeah, no. And that I, I really like how you, you said, you know, what do you think of when you hear the term elderly? Mm -hmm. Now get rid of that altogether. And I'm like, whoa, that's such a huge, that's such a game changer and, and just a completely different mindset. And if we can take that on all aspects of life, that's, that's, a, that's, that's one way to possibly change the world. Well, and I'm 64. So I am, I am definitely heading into the category and, and I think about how I want to be called. Um, I want to be called Margaret <laughs> you know, and I don't want to be called a geriatric, you know, geriat I'm in a geriatric, you know, category or that I'm, uh, you know, elderly, you know, I'm part of the elderly. I don't want to want any of that. And I also really want to dispel I think the myth that everybody is going to age and end up in a, in a, you know, in a, in a 
community where they're going to need advanced care because they have advanced dementia. It's just not the reality of what most of us experience in later life. So, yeah, I think that's why I think we tend to gravitate more toward just saying older adult when we're referring to the podcast, but also the reason I've kind of embraced the third age, fourth age a bit is because that's not relevant to your age per se. It's relevant to kind of that status of your health and well-being of where you are. And we try, try to encourage people to do the things that are going to put them in third age for the longest period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know when either of you, you or I are going to be retiring. I hope not too, too close in the future, but you know, I'm not at 60. Uh, I don't think fitting into that third age yet. And so I want to wait, wait that off as long as possible and then my goal in fourth age is for it to be a matter of hours or, you know, days or, you know, weeks at the most. I don't want to spend years in fourth age because that's that category that kind of tends to fit the description that we call elderly. And and <clears throat> I think for us to use third age and fourth age is really intended to period that period of time that we're referring to as opposed to the individual as well. And I do like that idea. And we'll get into kind of your intersectionality piece here in a little bit in the podcast, but I'm not a big fan of describing people in these large categories of this is your silo. You hit this age point. So you are now this, well, no, you have so much else going on in your life that uh, makes you different than the person next to you that might be the same age, might be older, might be younger. So the other thing to keep in mind too, I'm, you know, my background's in human development. So when I focus on parent-child relationships, I focus on them from the very beginning to the very end. So you have to look at parent-infant, even, you know, like what happens as that, that be, you know, as the, through development all the way across and how those folks, and it could be a grandparent raising your grandchild too, but how that caregiver child relationship trans you know transpires over time right and so i i understand that i understand the life course and every there's so much variability so i think of it as chapters yeah and it's a good way uh, to look at it for me and um i am retiring i'm retiring in not that i'm counting but in 11 months and so oh, i did not know that that's sad I, to hear yeah i officially announced back in april to my division um and, and in part because there's a lot more that I want to do. And yeah. um, I won't stop doing some of the things, but I've got other chapters and uh, and they don't include grading papers. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, that's anyway, that's the way I think of it. Well, I was looking forward as we were, were launching our graduate program in human wellness and performance that we would have so many more interactions with you and getting our students kind of taking more of your courses and now to hear you won't be around, but yeah, I'm well, sure somebody will replace you that yeah. I'm, I'm, is, I'm definitely replaceable. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, not replaceable, but you know, yeah. Can be substituted for, I guess yeah. is the way to look at it. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't even have you as a student and just in this podcast alone, I'm learning so much from you. So I'm <laughs> like, I often, when I have students that are looking for elective courses that kind of take within the major, it's like, go over to gerontology because Mm -hmm. again, partly it's, you know, this podcast is launched from my passion with the fact that I want to delay the negative sides of aging 
and what most people tend to perceive aging to be and say, you know, aging is just a number. And what can we do to improve that aging process? And, and I think on the podcast, we tend to kind of favor a perspective that aging begins at conception. And you kind of said that to a point. And that kind of leads me into my next question, which one of your areas of research is in or involves intergenerational transmission among families. What is this and how exactly does that relate to aging well? My passion is intergenerational relationships. And I became curious when I was a doctoral student about the transmissions that happen in families, transmission of family identity, transmission of health. Um, So, for instance, when I was working at Ohio University for 10 years, I collaborated with the professor of nursing and we went out into Appalachia and interviewed family members where one person had type 2 diabetes. And Sharon, my colleague, Sharon Denham, um, she interviewed people who were, who had type two diabetes. And I interviewed the family member who was the, you know, in the context of the family. And often it was an adult child, or it might be a spouse or a partner of some kind to see how health was managed in the household. And so health is also, so these transmissions, I guess the way that I can describe this are these transmissions can be how we transmit family identity, family culture, health, you know, ideas around health. So for instance, this young woman I interviewed, she said that her mother would make her, when she came to visit, would make her uh, check her, um, prick her finger and, and check what was going on in terms of her own situation. And she said, I'm, my mother's determined that I'm, she knows I'm going to get this. And I said, do you have it? Do you have any? No, she says, no, but it's like this. So there's this sense of what's being passed on in that family around health, health process. Us, you know, does a family eat dinner together? And do you pass that on to succeeding generations? Because we have data that suggests that family well-being is enhanced by having meals together every night together, right? So there's so much that we pass on. So I was real curious about that. And I've done, I've studied that in families in poverty in in uh in Appalachia. I've studied that in um my doctoral, my doctoral focus was I interviewed 30 older women who were first generation out of the Armenian genocide. So a little bit about my background. This is a rambling podcast. Interview. That's fine. Our podcasts usually are. My uh, grandparents were genocide survivors. So um, in the early um, 20th century, um, they had different, they are from different parts of what is now Southeast Turkey and my grandfather's, his parents were killed. His sisters were killed. He was an orphan. He eventually made it to the United States. My grandmother, her parents, her father was killed in front of the house. She and her older brother and sister survived. The siblings all survived. Two, three sisters and, and one brother. My, my great-grandmother was forced on a march to Syria with the youngest daughter. The youngest daughter survived, but my great-grandmother died on that march. So, and then on the other side of me, my mother immigrated from Germany. And in the German culture, it's like, I have all these things that goes to the oldest daughter that's that's from the Bavaria, whatever. And I've got a dish here and with a little thing in German. And so I have these things that have meaning that's kind of like, this is really important. And my grandmother was really, it was really important for her to pass that on. When I look at my Armenian side, I have nothing, right? Because they came with nothing. And so 
there's a whole literature in gerontology and psychology about the meanings we attach to things. That's a form of transmission, right? Mm -hmm. Here's this tool that I use to work on the railroad and I'm passing it on to my grandson or my granddaughter because this has meaning to me, right? Or the pot that grandma made the best Italian spaghetti sauce in gets passed on to the next generation. But I was like, okay, so I have these things on my German side, but what is being passed on from my Armenian side? So I started there and that's, and I have done a lot of research around that. And I've presented that. I even recently collaborated with a New York playwright and we did a kind of an, uh, an interesting collaborative thing around that, those Armenian stories about that. And in a lot of oral cultures and cultures and individuals that don't have things, it's the stories. It might be the family stories that get passed down. It might be the rituals that like Corbin, maybe you have a grandparent that taught you how to do something. That's an intergenerational transmission. It might be um, the, the written family history that gets passed on. It might be an appreciation for wild places and for, um, or, uh, you know, whatever it could be. I don't know, but um, the fact that you brush your teeth in the morning and at night, you know, who taught you that, you know, so there's like, there's like different things that get passed on and I'm intrigued by that. And so I spend time talking to younger people, you know, about, you know, what, 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 tell me about your relationship with a grandparent and are there things that you feel that they've passed on to you? And a lot of times it's values um, certain stories. It might be a, a, a an article, like it can be something material, but typically not always. And in the face of complete ad, um, adversity, like what happened on my one side of my family, you know, what ultimately does get passed on um, was the question I was starting with. So yeah. that's fascinating. And, and I tend to kind of teach some of the same stuff. I don't use that same language, Mm-hmm. Uh, and being a physiologist, I take it from more the physiological <laughs> side. So we talk about epigenetics and and we talk about the genetic transference of stuff. But I do touch a little bit on the social aspects. But for me, I, there's a quote from Per Olaf Astrand that I use often with my students where if you want to be an elite athlete, choose your parents wisely. Yeah. And I often kind of use that as a more colorful way of kind of going back to this idea of the intergenerational transmission that you are who you are because of everything that has happened in not only your past, but your parents past and, and beyond. And I I find it hugely fascinating just from a physiological standpoint, as well as, you know, social and behavioral and everything else. And I think, um, I, I think that's great. I think one of the things that I, that I focused on is that transmission of trauma. Cause that is definitely in both sides of my family. Um, Cause my German side, they, they uh, immigrated after world war II. And my mother was a young girl in Germany when, when during world war II. And but that's the epigenetic. I believe in that. When I traveled in 2014 to um, Southeast Turkey with a group of Armenians, I, we spent tw- over 2000 miles going through that area, visiting ancestral homes. I had, reactions in my body that I couldn't explain. And I know that it was like a real reality check on, on that intergenerational transmission of trauma. Right. And and such. So there's, I really, the epigenetic research is fascinating. Um, It's just starting to open up. It's I'm really excited to see what it might, where it might take us. Yeah. So 
anyway, so that's that's kind of where I what my interests are. And so in terms of gerontology, I really focus on relationships. And and it usually it does always include an older person, you know, an older adult in that relationship, but it also includes parents, young parents. Um, I was on an 11, 11 state project for many years looking at family well-being in the context of welfare reform after the Clinton administration changed some of the uh, the issues around you know receiving well welfare you know in terms of temporary aid for needy families and um, you know our our participants were young women we all mothers with at least one child under the age of five but what I was interested in is why what who was the primary support person for that young mother? And typically it was her mother. And um, so that's, that's where my interests lie, if that makes sense. So. Absolutely. We'll pause our conversation here and continue with Dr. Manugian in the next episode. Stay tuned as we discuss the role of community structure and policies in overcoming limitations that the intergenerational transmission of individual abilities traits, behaviors, and outcomes from the parents and grandparents to their children have on one's ability to age well. Thank you for listening. I hope you benefited from today's podcast. And until next time, keep aging well.